Hey guys, I'm lead pastor Noel Peepgrass, and I just wanted to welcome you to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a church family to be a part of, or feel called to join a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 West Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. I grew up in the church, and when I was five years old, I prayed the prayer with my parents, because my brother had prayed the prayer, right? And he, he had prayed the prayer about asking Jesus to come into his heart. And uh, I was like, I like Jesus, and so I'll pray that prayer too. I really want to pray that prayer. And so uh, I, I prayed the prayer and made the decision as a kid to follow Jesus. But, but if I'm honest, you know, a lot of my life, up until college really, was, was, more, uh, was more driven uh, uh, towards like trying to earn my salvation. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. I was, I was not a rebellious kid. Um, not, a, not really rebellious, but, but I still like had stuff, you know, and I had even stuff that I was doing that I knew I, I wasn't supposed to do. So like any person that's trying to earn their salvation, instead of confessing that stuff and bringing it in the light and receiving God's grace and forgiveness, I would just, I was continuing in it, mastered by it, and lying about it to put forward this appearance of like having attained uh, salvation, I guess you could say, right? Being this like religious person. I was, I was missing the gospel of Jesus in that way. I was falling off the horse in the side of performing and earning my salvation. Do you know what I'm saying? Maybe some of you can relate. I think we're also all aware that there's another way to miss it, right? The way that I was like determined not to miss it was on the, the way of rebellion, Right, and some of us have those uh, those like uh, backgrounds as well. Some of you are even sitting here now, like thinking to yourself, "Well, I've just done too much to ever like be able to attain God's favor." And I'm here to tell you this morning that there's a third way, not the way of rebellion or the way of earning, but the way of grace, the way that only Jesus can provide. And I think that message, just Jesus. That's what it is, just Jesus. That's the message that I want you to take home today. And so uh, we start Matthew chapter 16 uh, with the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to Jesus and testing him. So if, if you're following along, you know, and I'd like to just kind of make sure we're all keeping track of the narrative arc that's happening here. Jesus has been in like uh, outside of Galilee and now he is back in Galilee. We left him last. He had just come back to a place called Magdala. This is where Mary of Magdalene was from. So he's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. He's in friendly territory. It should be friendly territory, except that these religious leaders called the Pharisees and now the Sadducees as well, two groups of religious leaders are coming to Jesus to stir up controversy. It's really interesting because these two groups were rival factions in ancient Judaism. They did not get along. They did not see eye to eye. They had one thing in common with one another. They opposed Jesus. Jesus was their common enemy. So here we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
rivals, now united over their common enemy, Jesus. So what do they come to him with? A test is what they come to him with. That's a really important part, something that you could easily lose in this passage. It doesn't say they asked him a question. It says they tested him. They're asking for a sign, but they're not really asking. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to tempt him, perhaps, into giving them some sort of sign of his divinity. It's really powerful and interesting to note that their request for a sign is in sharp contrast to the reception that Jesus received just a few stories back as he was in Gentile territory. Remember, you guys, it's the the people who we would expect to receive Jesus as king who miss him the most. The religious leaders of his day did not see the divinity, the messiahship of Jesus. And so in any event, what's going on here is they're attempting to trap him. This is not a legit request. They're testing. They're not asking. They're accusing. They're not seeking to learn. In fact, they knew probably that he would not grant their request. How do we know that? Well, a few months back, Matthew chapter 12, there's a really similar story where the Pharisees come to him and ask for a sign. So they, they knew that he wouldn't grant this request uh, because it wasn't really a legit request. They were trying to trap him. So what does Jesus answer in verse 2? And again, you can follow along in your Bibles. In verse 2, he replies, When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So, of course, a man uh, well acquainted with boats, open water, and storms I mean, has anyone not been amazed? Like, Jesus is always on a boat. They're like always crossing the lake, you know? I'm like, is that really how they did it? They're always crossing a lake. So Jesus, of course, was acquainted with with, um, sailing, I suppose. And and so he uses an old sailing adage to to get his point across. He says, basically, red uh, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Maybe some of you are acquainted with the seas and have heard that phrase before. But what he's saying to the religious leaders is, you know how to observe what's going on and orient your life around it. You do this every day with the weather. But pay attention, you religious leaders, to what's happening in front of you. He calls it the signs of the times. If you're willing to accept the reality of my life, Jesus says, if you're willing to accept the magnitude of the things I've been doing and saying, right? This is what they should be accepting. But this is what they're missing. The reality of his life, they're asking for a sign. And Jesus says, you will get no sign except the sign of Jonah, which you're experiencing by watching my life. That's probably why you're back asking questions raising up controversy. So what is this uh, sign of Jonah? Let's go back to Matthew 12, 40, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. Matthew 12, 40, and Jesus' earlier response to the same question, he refers to the Old Testament story of the prophet Jonah, just like he does here, okay? And he connects it 
to what is to come of his own life. He says in Matthew 12, verse 40, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jesus has a lot of parallels in his life to the life of Jonah. Like, like Jonah, Jesus was a prophet of God. Like Jonah, Jesus was swallowed up by death. Yes, Jonah swallowed by a fish, Jesus by the grave, but swallowed up by death for three days. Both Jesus and Jonah were before being brought to new life. In the case of Jonah being spat up on the beach, in the case of Jesus being resurrected by the rolling away of the stone, and, and in so doing, bringing repentance to a wayward people, Jonah, Nineveh, and of course, Jesus, the world. See, Matthew's Jesus says, if you want a sign, I'll give you a sign, but there will only be one, and you better be paying attention. The one sign from heaven is my life. Don't miss it. After bringing them back to the sign of Jonah, it says, Jesus left them and went away. This is uh, maybe something that you've noticed in the pattern of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't stick around much uh, to fight with the religious leaders. He's not going to make a long argument of it, that's for sure. I mean, he'll engage the controversy to an extent, and then he goes about withdrawing. This is the way of Jesus. It's not that he ignores controversy, but he doesn't live in controversy. And the reason is because I think it's, it's not his life's mission to convince or persuade these religious leaders, right? That's not what he came to do. He gives them the deep truth. I am the sign of Jonah. And then he's on his way. So now we come to like a second part in the story. So the first part had the controversy between the Pharisees and Jesus. The, the second part uh, gives us the disciples' misunderstanding. So in verse 5, it says, here's Jesus getting on a boat again. They went across the lake. It says, the disciples forgot to bring bread. Verse 6, be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread that he's saying this. It's kind of an interesting little fact that they, the, the author Matthew includes in this story. They forgot their bread. They knew they didn't have bread, and so they're probably really hungry and thinking to themselves, where are we going to get bread? We're on the open seas. We're going off into Gentile territory, probably across the lake. They would have known as Jews that you, you can't eat Gentile bread. It's not kosher, right? It's not ceremonial, ceremonially clean. And so they're probably getting hungry and a bit worried. All they can think about here is the bread. And they miss the yeast metaphor. And in a sense, I think this is a warning in and of itself. When all you can think of is what you don't have, you can miss the thing you really need. They're focused on the material. They're not aware of the spiritual. The disciples, they couldn't see their spiritual dilemma because they were caught up in their perceived physical need. They've got no clue what he's talking about, this yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All they can think about is their physical need for bread. I mean, is it possible that sometimes we miss the spiritual 
because of our preoccupation with the material? You know, like there's, I don't know, there's not enough people. There's not enough energy. I don't, I'm tired. I, there's not enough money. I don't have enough youth left in my days. I don't have enough time. These are all material ways that we relate, many times ignoring the spiritual reality that's right in front of us or what God is trying to teach us. So what's the moral of this story? We see the Pharisees engage with Jesus. We see the disciples misunderstand what Jesus is trying to say. So let's go to verse 8. It says, aware of their discussion, because Jesus was always aware of all the discussions that were going on. You can't hide anything from the all-knowing Jesus. He asked them, you of little faith. We've heard that phrase a few times in the book of Matthew. Little faith, he calls them. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? And then he goes back to history and calls about their memories. Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Remembrance. I think I said this last week. This is, this is apparently one of the key uh, components of true faith, remembering and holding on to what Jesus has done. He says, remember the feeding of the 5,000. I had five loaves, and I fed 5,000. And then remember the feeding of the 4,000. These both happened. Those stories can even feel like, like repetitive, right? Evidently, they needed the repetition. Here they are without bread and still worried, even though they're in the presence of the man who is the bread of life. So he's like, remember the 5,000 and the five loaves. Remember the 4,000 and the seven loaves. And notice this, Jesus did more when he had less. He did more with less. He fed 5,000 with only five loaves. The bigger the problem, the bigger Jesus' response. The bigger the problem, the greater Jesus' power. The more you need, the more you get with Jesus. This is powerful. And this leads us beautifully to the theology of grace that we've already talked about multiple times this morning. Look, it's not what you or I have. It's who we have. It's not what we have. It's who we have. It's not what you know. It's who you know. You've heard that colloquialism, haven't you? See, with Jesus, nothing is impossible. There's nothing impossible with Jesus. If you have Jesus plus nothing, you have everything. Jesus is enough. This is clearly an invitation or a reminder for us to trust him and to his disciples as well that day. But, but there's, there's more than just remembering what he's done in this story. I think the moral of the story is yet to come. And so he says in verse 11 and 12, How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then it says in verse 12 that it was then that they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast using bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So what is this teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus is warning against? This is the yeast, right? This doctrine of the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So here we come to the primary teaching of this passage. Guard against the teaching of these religious leaders. 
So what teaching is he talking about? And, and like I said, it's sort of complex because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not ideologically aligned. In a sense, they were theological or ideological rivals. The, for example, the, the Pharisees were more like common men. The Sadducees were like the elitists. They were aristocrats. The Sadducees were political. The uh, Pharisees were more like regional, hometown, local. Anyway, they represent rival Jewish sects. So, so what's this teaching that he's talking about? Because they don't even agree on their own teaching. Did you know that there's, the Sadducees did not recognize uh, the idea of re resurrection? They didn't believe that resurrection was possible. Um, they also didn't believe in angels. So these people believe very different things about God. They're not theologically aligned. So what is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? What is this yeast that Jesus is warning us to guard against? Well, I think there's a few things. The first thing is, is a warning against sensationalism. Moreism. Warning against wanting more than just Jesus. They come to him asking for a sign. Give us a divine sign, Jesus, they say. Making demands of God is always a bad idea. And they're clearly missing the point with their demand for a sign. They're, they're being sensational. They want more than just Jesus. Show us something, right? And in this, we see the second point, living itself out. The Pharisees and the Sadducees re have rejected Jesus. Jesus was not enough. They always wanted something more. It says in Matthew 12, 30 and 32 that they were guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The rejection of Jesus, the ultimate sin, what Jesus says is the unforgivable sin. And then lastly, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were guilty of a works-based righteousness. This is the, the, um, the striving, the position of earning salvation that I described earlier. This is why the Pharisees constructed this like oral law where they took the laws of Moses and they were so serious about trying to follow the laws of Moses that they added rules to the rules in order that they wouldn't break the rules. This is the essence of legalism, and this is what Jesus came to tear them apart from. We also know that the Sadducees, they were all about what you did as well. They were strict adherents to the law of Moses and all the temple ceremonies. In fact, the Sadducees were the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem. So their works-based righteousness is also a part of this teaching that Jesus is coming against. So why does Jesus compare their teaching to yeast? Why does he use the yeast metaphor? We've heard him use that metaphor before. And, and we know that yeast, if you're a baker, my daughter told me that yeast is an activating ingredient, right? It, uh, it, it causes bread to rise, causes bread to grow, to spread. Is that right? Please, if you're a baker, kind of shake your head with me. I feel a little bit out of, out, over my skis on that baking analogy there. In some translations, uh, maybe your Bible says leaven, right? So leaven is uh, fermented dough. Same idea, it, you, put, you add it to your dough and it spreads, right? Infecting all of the dough. Uh, and, and in the ancient Jewish world, leaven was a metaphor for evil. So beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They would have heard this as beware the evil of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is Jesus coming right at the people that they thought were in charge of their religious system. 
the people who maintained the temple, the, the Pharisees who were more righteous than anyone they could ever imagine. Jesus comes right after these people. He calls them evil. Their teaching is evil. The idea is that leaven has the power to take over and invest, right? I'm sorry, infest. Like, leaven has the power. A small amount of leaven can take over a piece of dough and infect all of it. So Jesus says, beware this teaching. It has the power to infest your heart. Be careful what you allow to take over your heart. Did you see what just happened right there? I got really scared that that was the end. There was, I was missing my last page. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I was like, all right, Holy Spirit, here we go. Last page of the sermon, it's on you. In Matthew 13, that's the passage that Jesus uh, talked about yeast in. Uh, we, we, we saw a parable, and Jesus used yeast as an illustration. He says, the kingdom of heaven is also like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. So Jesus says, stand guard the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, lest it take over your heart. Instead of their yeast, use mine. Remember what I've taught you about my kingdom, Jesus would say to his disciples. Remember the healing I've brought. Remember the miracles. Remember when I just fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. Remember the good yeast. Remember the doctrine that leads to life. See, Jesus, the sign of Jonah, he's all that we need. I think the moral of the story, it points us to the great doctrine of Christ alone. We should have sung that song this morning. I didn't want to spring it on Jake too late. He probably could have played it in his sleep. But anyways, Christ alone, or, or if you're familiar with the Reformation and the five solas, sola Christus is how the Reformers put it. Christ alone. See, the good news, the gospel message that brings us into right standing with God, that frees us from the bondage of sin, that transforms our dead lives into new creations, it's the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, period. The good news is just Jesus. John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is Jesus speaking. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And, and as this little passage goes on, evidently even the disciples that were with Jesus at this point in the story needed more proof because Philip in John 14 responds by saying, Lord, Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. See, even for them at one point, Jesus wasn't yet enough. And Jesus answered Philip in verse 9 of John 14 by saying, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you all this time? Look, here's what we have to see this morning. In Jesus' life, we have every sign we need. Jesus is the sign. The whole story of God has been pointing to him up until this point. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole story of the Bible is pointing to Jesus. He's the only one who can save us. He's the rescuer we've needed since day one, and sin entered the world. 
hear this. There's life in what I'm going to say simply here. You guys, he is the only one that can save us. Just Jesus. It's not good behavior. Though that's nice. It's good. Behave well. But you can't save yourself through good behavior. It's not attention to religious rules. Those things are great. You should obey all the commands of Scripture. But your obedience to the rules is not enough to save you. And we're here in church. I'm a pastor trying to grow a church. But I'm here to tell you, no amount of church attendance can save you. It's good for you. You should come. But it can't save you. Prayer can't save you. Fasting can't save you. Communion, singing, tithing, serving in the kids' ministry, whatever is the most religious thing you could think of doing cannot save you. There's only one answer to the problem of our hearts. Just Jesus. That's it. Just Jesus.